I, I want to give a special shout out too to two moms this morning uh, who are expecting moms. Uh, Kate and Jamie, we're thinking of you ladies uh, in these days as well. And uh, praying, praying for you. Um, let's uh, just take a moment right now and, and, and do that and give thanks. Uh, Lord, we're thankful for our moms and we're thankful for all the moms who are part of our uh, great church family. We're thankful for all those, uh, all those kids uh, who took the time and and we're that thoughtful. It's just uh, just a wonderful opportunity we have today to, to celebrate uh, our moms. And um, we pray for, uh, for Kate and Jesse and for Jamie and Joe uh, in these days as they are about to have uh, uh, their families increased. And, and we thank you for the, these uh, new, new family members that are on the way and for all the joy that that they bring, but we know as well, Lord, that there are also struggles and difficulties, and so we pray that you would help them and strengthen them and encourage them today. We pray that you would do that for every mom. It's not easy. It's a, maybe the toughest job in the world to be to be a mom, and and uh, as we've heard today, uh, so many moms just they just excel in loving and caring, and we're just thankful for the incredible pictures of Jesus that they are in the lives of all who are privileged to to be a part. And Lord, as we turn now to uh, those uh, scriptures of Mark chapter 1 and 2, that you, would, uh, that you would be our teacher today. We pray that you would open our understanding. Help us to understand as we can start to look at the miracles and mercies of Jesus. Help us to, to understand and to take from them what you have for us. And just bless your church family today, we pray, and all those who, who are under the sound of your word. In Jesus' name, amen. So we're doing a three-year journey through the Bible. We are now into the New Testament, and we're doing it this way because the New Testament uh, pick writers uh, pick up where the Old Testament writers leave off. Uh, and it's been a, a long wait between the Old Testament and the New Testament. Uh, a lot has happened in the world and in society, uh, but no word coming from God no, uh, uh, no miracles uh, happening. Uh, it's been a long, a long wait, um, but things are happening now rather suddenly in a really, really big way. I'm excited to be starting this eight-week uh, mini-series uh, on the miracles and uh, mercy of Jesus. Um, this is the first time since we've entered the New Testament that we're in the book of Mark. Uh, that's where we are this morning. Uh, last week we were in the book of Luke and we met uh, Levi, the tax collector. And uh, Jesus called uh, Levi to follow him. And uh, his name, we sometimes call him uh, Matthew Levi. Most of the time we just call him Matthew because he is the author of the book of Matthew. Now Simon Peter was front and center in our story last week as well at the feet of Jesus after that massive catch of fish. And, uh, and uh, Jesus calls Peter to follow him as well. And the reason I bring that up now is because we believe and understand that Mark got his information primarily from Peter. So Matthew Levi follows Jesus, goes on to write the book of Matthew. Peter is the main source for Mark, who writes the book of Mark, or the gospel according to Mark. In the book of Acts, which records the early life of the church, or the life of the early church, 
uh, we get introduced to this young man. His name is John, but he's called Mark. So that's the way he's introduced to us. And uh, that's why we often refer to him as John Mark. His mother was a, a woman named Mary, who was a woman of means. She had a substantial home in Jerusalem, uh, and that uh, became an important gathering place uh, in the days of the early church in Jerusalem. And Acts chapter 12 records this incident, and you may be, uh, recall it or be familiar with it, where Peter is miraculously delivered from prison by God, and uh, meanwhile, there's a group gathered in uh, Mark's mom's home praying for Peter, and suddenly Peter shows up at the door and uh, knocks on the door. Uh, that's the, the Mary, and that's the mother of John Mark, who became the author of the book of Mark. Uh, the book of Acts goes on to, to uh, tell us that he became a companion of Paul and Barnabas, and we actually have an indication that he was uh, either Barnabas's cousin or perhaps his nephew. Uh, but it's Peter's relationship with Mark or with John Mark that is most important to us. Um, Mark went on to be a, a companion of Peter's and, and uh, a mentor of Peter, really. Uh, when Peter wrote the letter he, that we call First Peter, Mark was with him on mission in Rome uh, with the gospel. And in that letter, uh, in the last chapter, chapter 5, uh, verse 13, Peter refers to Mark as my son. Now, we don't believe or we're not thinking that Mark was Peter's actual biological child, but probably he had a relationship with Peter much like uh, Paul's relationship with uh, Timothy. You may recall that Paul referred to Timothy as his son in the faith. And so Mark's relationship with Peter seems to parallel Luke's relationship uh, to Paul. Each time Paul makes mention of Luke in his letters, he mentions Mark as well. So uh, there's a lot of evidence to suggest that the accounts related to uh, us in the book of Mark come primarily from Peter. And we don't need to go into more of that this morning, but it's, it's helpful to understand the perspective of Mark or help us understand Mark better, the book of Mark better, if we understand where he got his information. And with that in mind, listen to these words that Peter wrote. Peter wrote these words in 2 Peter. He says, For we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For when, we, when he received honor and glory from God the Father, and the voice was borne to him by the majestic glory, this is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. We ourselves heard this voice born from heaven, for we were with him there on the holy mountain. The book of Mark is largely the testimony of Peter as an eyewitness to the life and the death and resurrection of Jesus. So, more about the book of Mark. The book of Mark is a book of action. Uh, Mark is writing about the good news, and he's in a hurry. He's excited. He's excited to tell the story. One of Mark's favorite words is the word that he uses over and over again, which is the word immediately. So he's pretty excited about this as he's telling his story. And so it's appropriate that we start this mini-series on the miracles of Jesus in the book of Mark. 
The New Testament writers pick up where the Old Testament leaves off. The Old Testament is a watershed of theology into the New Testament. It's been a long wait, and a lot has happened. Malachi wrote 400 years prior to, to these events. And uh, during those 400 years, we call them the 400 silent years, but now the scriptures are silent no more. There is new revelation in the person of Jesus, and things are happening now. Uh, oh, are things ever happening now? Because we're talking miracles. Uh, there's been an absence of revelation, and there's been an absence of miracles, because miracles are associated with Revelation. Miracles speak. Miracles teach. The miracles have a message. And that's a message we want to make sure we get right. Um, the Messiah is here. What's he going to do? He's going to save us. That's what the whole Old Testament was all about, right? And that is what the miracles are intended to convey. The miracles of Jesus are pictures or visuals of our salvation. It's quite common for us to think of the life of Jesus in two categories. We tend to think of his words and his works, his teachings and his miracles. But there is a message in the miracles. And just as Jesus' teachings can be misunderstood, so his miracles can be and often are misunderstood. Uh, so how are we to receive the miracles of Jesus? We need to remember that Miracles are associated with revelation. And this is true in the Old Testament as well as in the New Testament, just so you know. The miracles speech, speak, they teach us. And uh, they can be understood or misunderstood. Now, you might be thinking, well, you know, what's there to understand? They just kind of are what they are. Either you believe them or you don't. Um, it's kind of what separates a believer from an unbeliever, right? Uh, you either believe them or you don't, and it's just that simple. But you know what? It's not really that uh, simple. If it were that simple, then we could separate Jesus' miracles from his teaching. And although people do try to do that, you can't, you can't really do that. There's a message in the miracle. Now let's get into the book of, uh, of Mark a bit and see. Uh, I think these things will become clearer to us as we get into these these. Um, Narratives today. Now, Mark chapter 1 covers the material from the first days of uh, Jesus' public life and ministry uh, that we've been covering in recent weeks. Uh, Mark tells about uh, John the Baptist and about his ministry and about Jesus coming and being baptized uh, by John. He tells us about the temptation of Jesus in the wilderness and the calling of the first disciples. And then in the second half of Mark chapter 1, he tells us about uh, a number of healing miracles that Jesus did. Uh, the uh, man with the unclean spirit that Alex uh, referenced there earlier, uh, along with Peter's mother-in-law. And uh, then it goes on to say that he healed, uh, a man, uh, healed many who were sick and oppressed. Um, and then he's, uh, Mark says he traveled throughout all of Galilee preaching and doing miracles. You can see that in Mark chapter 1, verses, uh, verse 39. And to, to that point, at the very end of Mark chapter 1, the last verse of Mark chapter 1 tells us that it got to the point where Jesus 
he, before he even got to a town, he wouldn't even be able to get into the town sometimes because people would come out and swarm him. He'd become extremely popular uh, because of his preaching and teaching and maybe particularly because of his miracles. And that sets up the scene for today's main passage, which is Mark chapter 2. We're going to look at the first 12 verses and read them uh, together. Mark chapter 2, verses 1 through 12. It says, when he returned to Capernaum, after some days, it was reported that he was at home, and many were gathered together so that there was no more room, not even at the door. And he was preaching the word to them. And they came bringing to him a paralytic carried by four men. And when they could not get near him because of the crowd, they removed the roof above him. And when they had made an opening, they let down the bed on which the paralytic lay. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven. Now some of the scribes were sitting there questioning in their hearts, Why does this man speak like that? He is blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? And immediately Jesus, perceiving in his spirit that they thus questioned within themselves, said to them, why do you question these things in your hearts? Which is easier, to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven, or to say, rise up and take your bed and walk? But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He said to the paralytic, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed, and go home. And he rose, and immediately, there's that favorite word, he rose and immediately picked up his bed and went home before them all. So that they were all amazed and glorified God, saying, we never saw anything like this. Or in the vernacular, we ain't never seen anything like this before. Uh, you know, last week we learned that uh, at least Peter and Andrew, James and John and Matthew were from Capernaum. And it appears uh, that Jesus spent a lot of time in that area and in Capernaum. Uh, when he returned to Capernaum from a mission trip, it was reported in verse 1 that he had come home. So that, has, that tells us a lot, doesn't it? And so Jesus is in the house where he was accustomed to stay uh, and uh, the place he called home. And he's teaching as he always did. And it says in verse 2 that he was preaching the word to them. And the crowds were pressing in, so much so that you couldn't get near him, couldn't even get near the door. Now, this story has been rehearsed many times. Uh, the, there was this young uh, man. We know... I think we can say we for sure we know he was a young man because Jesus calls him son. Uh, and Jesus at this time would have been in his uh, very early 30s. So, so this is a young, a young guy, and he is a, a paralyzed man. We don't know the extent of his par uh, paralysis, but we know that he couldn't walk. But he had four good friends. He was fortunate enough to have four good friends who were determined to get him to Jesus, the miracle worker. Um, maybe we could stop long enough here just to say, uh, young men, choose your friends well. 
So they're carrying him. And they can't get through the crowd, so they go up on the roof. They uh, make a hole in the roof. They carry him up there, make a hole, and then they lower him through the hole in the roof uh, down onto the floor in front of Jesus. Uh, we have often used this story to share um, the lesson of uh, evangelism and how, how it's important it is for us to be the kind of friends that this man had and, and how we should be willing to overcome whatever barriers exist in order to see that people get to come to Jesus so that they can be healed, so that they can be helped, so that they can be saved. Um, and I, I, I think that we can, we can say that. And I think that this passage does teach that. But can you imagine what it must have been like for them? Try to picture it in your mind. You're, you're, maybe you're one of the fortunate ones who actually gets to be inside. The scribes were there. Some of them were there. And as the dust is settling through the light that is streaming down from this uh, massive hole in the roof, uh, there is this man, this young, uh, unfortunate but fortunate man sitting, laying there on his mat in front of Jesus. And uh, it says that Jesus saw their faith and he said to the paralytic, son, your sins are forgiven. No, it's interesting, isn't it? He saw their faith collectively, not just his faith. It says he saw their faith. And I think probably there's an important lesson in that as well. And he says he saw their faith, and he says to the young man, your sins are forgiven. Now, that's not what anyone there probably was expecting. It's probably not what the friends were expecting. It's probably not what the man himself was expecting. And it's not what the scribes were expecting, because um, even though they didn't say anything, Jesus could see into their hearts and he could see what they were thinking. And what they were thinking was, only God can forgive sins. Therefore, this man, this Jesus, is a blasphemer. Um, <coughs> excuse me. <clears throat> and in response to their thoughts, Jesus uh, poses two questions. He says, why do you question these things in your hearts? And then this question, which is easier to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven, or rise, take up your bed, and walk? And then look at verse 10, because this is a key verse with a key statement that really will guide us through uh, not, not only today, but in the weeks to come through the discussion that we ha are having together about the miracles of Jesus. Because it says in verse uh, 10, that before Jesus did anything, he said, but that you may know. That, that's very informative to us. There is a message in the miracles. The miracles teach. The miracles reveal truth. And the miracles can be uh, misinterpreted. 
The religious community in Jesus' day misinterpreted the miracles. I, I don't know if you've thought of this. I think you probably have because I think most of us wonder about these things. If the leaders of Jesus' day had understood the miracles, they would have accepted him. They wouldn't have rejected him. Because, and here's the thing, they couldn't deny the miracles. Um, it was the one thing they couldn't deny. In fact, they, they brooded about this all, all the time. They, uh, they, said, how, they said to one another, they would get together and say, how are we ever going to get rid of this guy if he keeps becoming more and more famous all the time, doing all these incredible miracles that he keeps doing? At one point, they said this. They said, oh, great. Now the whole world is going to follow him. Uh, the last story in this eight-week series that we're doing, is it really brings this point out. It's the story of the blind man that Jesus heals. And the Pharisees remained in their, in their blindness. But they couldn't deny the miracle. They couldn't deny what they had, listen, what they'd seen with their own eyes. See, sometimes we, we, we miss that point. The, the, the apostles were eyewitnesses, but so were those who rejected him. So were the scribes and the Pharisees and the teachers of the law and the religious leaders of Jesus' day. They saw the miracles as well, but they didn't understand the message of the miracles. Show us a sign. Show us a sign. That's what they kept saying over and over again. All through Jesus' life, right up to the cross, when Jesus hung there on that cross, and they said, if you really are the Son of God, then come down off that cross. Reminds me of what the devil said to Jesus in the wilderness. If you really are the Son of God, then turn these stones to bread. Paul, uh, the apostle, uh, made this statement in 1 Corinthians 1. He says, The Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to the Jews and folly to the Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God. Jesus is a stumbling block. They tripped over him. They, uh, they didn't know what to do with him. They couldn't deny the incredible miracles that he was doing but they didn't have it in their hearts to accept him either. And I think it's because uh, we, we tend to think if people really knew who Jesus was and what he did, that they would repent and run to him. But when we think this way, I think we miss the point of belief that it's more personal and relational before it's something that's intellectual. The crowds misunderstood as well. Remember when Jesus fed the 5,000 and later on they followed him across the, the, the lake and to the other side. And at one point Jesus looked at the crowd and he said to them, you're just here because you had your stomachs full, filled. You're just here because I gave you bread to eat. 
even though it was an incredible miracle. See, they didn't get the miracle. They saw it. They experienced it. They even ate the bread, but they didn't get it. They misunderstood. Uh, and then, you know, there are others. Herod, at one point in the gospel narratives, Herod calls Jesus, calls for Jesus, and they bring Jesus in, and Herod wants Jesus to do a miracle. You know, show me, show me uh, a miracle. And Jesus just basically ignored him. The miracles have a message. What was it that Jesus was preaching? The text here today says he was preaching the word to them. But we know from earlier on in the book of Mark and from the other gospel accounts that what Jesus was preaching to the people was the good news of the kingdom of God. He preached the good news of the kingdom. That's what his preaching was about. So what were his miracles about? I believe that that's what his miracles were about, the good news of the kingdom. Remember, he is the king. Remember, he is the anointed one. Put these things together. He is the king, the anointed one, and he preached the kingdom of God and his miracles and are all about the kingdom of God. His teaching is all about what it means to live in the kingdom of God, and his miracles are meant to teach us, too, about life in the kingdom of God. Now, I shouldn't probably need to tell you this, but the kingdom of God is a vast subject. Have you ever noticed the many different miracles that Jesus did and how many there were? We're going to be looking at a number of them, but, but, but we're not going to be looking at all of them because they're not even all recorded. John tells us that. He did many, many, many miracles for many people, uh, young people, older people, women, children, men, uh, Jewish people, Gentiles, and of course, the disciples themselves. Jesus did miracles for them as well. And not only did he do all kinds of miracles uh, to help all kinds of different people, but he, he used all kinds of different uh, ways of doing those miracles. Sometimes he would just speak a word and, and, uh, and, and, and a miracle would occur. Uh, sometimes he would, uh, he would ask the person to do something. One time he even sent Peter fishing for a miracle. And... Uh, and then, and then another time, uh, he spat on the ground and, and, and uh, he made uh, mud uh, from the spittle and, and touched the person's ears and, and, and touched the, 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 mute, the tongue of the man who was mute. And all of these miracles were, were, were different. Why? And I, I, why is that? I would suggest to you that's because it's intended to convey the diverse richness of life in the kingdom of God as the presence and power of God restores and refreshes uh, and sustains every area of our, of our lives. And I believe that's what Paul has in mind when he talks to the Ephesians about uh, the riches of Christ. I hope you read through, and I hope you'll read through the many miracles of Jesus. And I hope that we can see together that they are visuals or pictures for us of life in the kingdom of God. You see, there's so much more to miracles than the surface of things. There's so much more to miracles than what meets the eye. Last week, we read Jesus' words to the teachers of the law in uh, Levi, Matthew Levi's house. 
It's very interesting. At uh, uh, that was in uh, Luke chapter, was it five or six where we were there? But, but the next account Mark goes into in Mark chapter two is the same account, the calling of Matthew Levi. And he too has these words from Jesus. In Mark chapter two, verse 17, it says that there that Jesus said to the teachers of the law there when they questioned him about eating and drinking with sinners, he says these words, it's not the whole that need a doctor, but those who are sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners. It's not the whole or the well who need a doctor, but those who are sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance, he says in, in the book of Luke, here in Mark chapter 2, verse 17. So, can I say a few things to you this morning about miracles? And maybe healing miracles in particular. Let me say this to you. Whether God heals your body in this life or not, and he certainly can, but whether God heals your body in this life or not, there is a greater healing that you need to understand about, and it is a healing of the soul. That's what Isaiah 53 is really all about. Isaiah 53 says, He was wounded for our transgressions, and by his wounds we are healed. The book of Revelation talks about a day that's coming when he's going to wipe away every tear from her eyes and says there will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain. It's Revelation chapter 21. You see, it's the same with, it's the same with money uh, and many other things. God can make you wealthy if he chooses to do so. But whether or not he does make you wealthy you can still have the riches of Christ. And if you don't have room in your theology for suffering in this life, then you don't have the theology of Jesus. There's a message in the miracles. They serve as eschatological beacons, directing our hearts and minds towards the hope we have in the kingdom of God. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. We are entering the kingdom. When we put our faith in Jesus Christ, we are entering the kingdom of God here and now. But it will not be fulfilled until his time. So what is the kingdom of God like? How would you describe the kingdom of God. Jesus describes the kingdom of God in many, many ways, but I think that he, we could also say the kingdom of God is like being blind and then being able to see. The kingdom of God is like being a leper and then being loved on. The kingdom of God is like being lame and now being able to leap and to laugh and to run. The kingdom of God is like that feeling you get when you know you're sinking and you're perishing only to be saved by the hand of Jesus. Now, maybe we don't always associate the miracles with salvation. You know, after all, being sick is not like being dead, right? We figure it's not, but is it not? Because all of the miracles of Jesus, I suggest to you, 
portray, uh, are portrayed in Scripture as acts of salvation. They are harbingers of hope. The hope of deliverance from all that would assail us. Whether it be a life of blindness or paralysis or hunger or demonic oppression or possession or torment or slavery or drowning. The miracles are part of the message. They are signs pointing us to a greater, more complete rescue from all that is not conducive to life in the kingdom of God. They're indicators. They're pictures. They're illustrations of salvations. They're tokens of the greater promises of God in their fullness. Maybe you know that later on Paul talks about the spirit of God in us as a deposit or as a down payment of our salvation. Curious that he would use that type of imagery. It says in Ephesians chapter 1, In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. And over in Corinthians, to the Corinthians, he said, as God who establishes us with you in Christ and has anointed us and who has also put his seal on us and given us his spirit in our hearts as a guarantee, a guarantee of what is to come. And I believe the miracles are like that. I believe they demonstrate the authority of Jesus, not only his power to command and but also his power to forgive and to restore. They are meant to inspire us to belief because we are saved by faith. The miracles are intended to inspire us to believe and be saved. It says that he saw their faith and he said to the paralyzed man, your sins are forgiven. But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. And he said to the paralytic, rise up, pick up your bed, and go home. And he immediately picked up his bed and he went out before them all. And they were all amazed and glorified God, saying, we've never seen anything like this before. He's amazing. Jesus is absolutely, totally amazing. His miracles are amazing. And they are meant to inspire us and to show and to teach us how amazing Jesus is and what life is like in his kingdom. Demonstrations of authority, monuments of mercy. Do you know him? Have you put your faith in him? I can't promise you that he'll heal your body because scripture doesn't give us that promise. But I can promise you that he'll heal your soul and forgive your sins. And that someday he'll Heal you completely. 
I want to end on a statement that's actually found in the Gospel of John that really, I think, says this so well. It says in John chapter 20, verse 30 and 31. It says, Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. Our text today says that Jesus said just before he did this miracle, he said, so that you will know. John says, so that you will know, so that you will believe, and that by believing you may have life in his name. Will you, uh, will you pray with me this morning? Lord, I thank you for this incredible account. I think of that man, that young man. And even though Jesus healed his body that day, restored his ability to be able to walk, I, I don't know whether he lived another five years, 10 years, 20 years. But I thank you, Lord, that you not only healed his body, you forgave his sin. You gave him eternal life. You allowed him to, to enter your kingdom. And I know that he's whole today. Lord, those of us who are living in this world, we look around at the, many of the, the, the sadness and, and the suffering and the sorrow of our lives. Lord, we know that you can, you can do anything you choose to do because you have that power and you have the authority, Lord. I thank you, Lord, for the greater realities of, of these things, that there is a world beyond, that there is more than that, the surface, and there's more to life than what we see with our eyes in this world. Lord, help us to put our faith in you. Lord Jesus, I pray that, I pray that you would do miracles in people's lives. I pray that you would do miracles in our lives, that you would be much at work doing uh, blessing people and encouraging people and creating faith in people. Lord, more important than anything, I thank you that you are calling people into a relationship with you that allows us to have our sins forgiven and allows us to enter your kingdom. And Lord, in your time, you will make all things well. And I thank you together with your people today and all those who call upon your name and all those who put faith in you. I thank you for your amazing grace that allows us to enter into your kingdom. And today we worship you together as our King and our Savior. Bless your people today, Lord. Bless us with faith as we serve you, Lord. Would you inspire faith in us today that we would know how amazing you are, Lord Jesus, that we would give you all thanks and praise and follow hard after you all the days of our, of our lives.
until you welcome us into your eternal kingdom. And we thank you in Christ's name. Amen.